You're listening to Bits of Me, the podcast about women's bodies, all the things we should know about them, and all the stories behind them. Around the world, there are more people with bladder issues than with hay fever. For some, incontinence becomes a huge problem, like for Luce Brett, author of the book PMSL, or how I literally pissed myself laughing and survived the last taboo to tell the tale. In this episode, Luce tells that tale, from the messiness of childbirth and the embarrassment of peeing your pants at a work do, to appointments with countless healthcare professionals, faecal incontinence, and what that experience does to your feminism. So, going back to the autumn of 2007, yes. um, you were struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder after a traumatic birth uh, and leaking yes, a lot of urine. That's right. Um, can you tell me what happened around then? So uh, my baby had been born in the summer, um, but because I had lots of complications, I didn't have what in the in the UK is your six-week check until I, he was a little bit older because I'd been in and out of hospital. And although I'd spent a lot of time when I, I had been in hospital or with midwives or with doctors saying, I think I'm leaking quite a lot, there had been people were like oh well it's probably normal it's probably a normal part of you know it'll calm down sort of thing and it so it was only quite late really after I'd given birth that someone was like so say that again and we went through and she said okay ah, you have a prolapse and you need to have treatment so when it got to that winter that's when I started having um, physiotherapy for the first time and um, I think it's really interesting because I tried in the book to be incredibly frank and that's not to scare anyone at all I think everybody should go and get help but it was because I just had no idea what I was walking into and Mm. it wasn't even bad like I can't tell you the kindness the human kindness the friendship that I've had from people who've looked after me but it's a weird world you know I I, in my head physiotherapy is like after you've had a serious car crash someone teaches you how to walk again or after you've had a stroke I don't know maybe I just sort of blanked it out but I had no idea what would happen if I met a pelvic health physio it kind of didn't even occur to me that she might examine me quite intimately, that she might be looking at those parts <laughs> of my body. Um, and so uh, what was weird about that moment, and it was one of many, one of many moments where I was sort of forced to reflect on my life. And I had all these conflicting thoughts, and some of them sound so trivial, but I can't blame the young me with that, you know, because I was just turned 30. I'd had this brand new, beautiful new baby. And I'm like, shouldn't I be in like a cafe trying to breastfeed badly in front of loads of other mums. Shouldn't I be showing my baby off to friends rather than here with someone who's asking me to squeeze and clench their fingers and then cough and then I'm weeing on the bed? And it's it's all just wrong. And I think when I wrote about it later, I realised how much of it was um, kind of really seen through the filter of that kind of shocked trauma because I think I was shocked about incontinence. But I think more than anything, I was shocked that childbirth didn't end when somebody put a baby on my chest. I think that somehow that's what we're led to believe. And especially, like, it's been really interesting writing about it and talking to so many people about it since, that I think it was, you know, your postnatal body is your postnatal body for the rest of your life. Like, it's still... Mm. My body still has some of the aftershocks and my my, that, that tiny baby's a teenager now, but... Yeah, I I was really shocked that it was still going on. And I think because I had continence issues, so that is a bit, you know, leaking, wetting yourself and all that sort of thing. It really did feel like I was almost like still pregnant. Like it was still that kind of body on the slab, everybody looking, 
intimate questions because it's weird isn't it if you're pregnant for the first time sometimes that's the first time you've had those kind of intimate questions from healthcare professionals and you sort of become quite like when you're pregnant you're thinking like oh my god she's asking that she's asking that and it was just that carry on Mm. and I think it kind of strikes me as well from reading your book that I mean it very much felt like throughout that like you had a, a fairly traumatic birth with bad tearing and all that um and then this this process of somebody trying to stitch you up and all this stuff and there was blood everywhere. And then you kept hemorrhaging and kept having to yeah. go back and all these huge blood clots. And so it very much doesn't feel like there's an end to the birth. Then you went home and then there was leakage. It feels no, as if it very much just all went on and it was this long, drawn out process. Yeah, and sort of like a metaphor for being um, a woman these days, just like, all of us, I think, live with the tyranny of just always messing your pants. Like, do what it, you know, it just reminds, like, it was just this long trajectory of like the worst ever period, accident, like, whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really accurate. And I think I'm very squeamish. Like, I've written a whole book about my family and about incontinence, but I'm actually quite prudish about that sort of stuff. It's just that <laughs> there wasn't really space for me to be no. um, like that. Um, and the physio, the other thing was that, um, that I was, and this is quite embarrassing to admit, but I, I remember, I mean, like they score you, they, you know, they give you targets and like, I am a good girl, like at school, I put my hand up, I did all the work, I tried really hard, I wanted to get in the paper on exam results day, I was that girl, that woman, and I'm standing there and it's like, I can't even control weeing, like, what, this is something like, like, and they'd be like, do a bladder diary, and then it was like, okay, so this is where you're doing it wrong, and I'm just like, oh my god goodness how can I possibly be this person who's like getting like really poor scores for something that I thought was fundamental and and I think that that sounds like really like sort of epiphany like and big but I feel like I had loads of sort of feminist body epiphanies in this whole journey and but that first year it was definitely a lot about shock and about wow so I have to really work at this so mm. there is a whole load of medics working in a field I'd never heard of. So there's a whole field of physio that just had never occurred to me exist existed, yeah. let alone that I would be standing there, one of the youngest women in the waiting room, with people sort of smiling at me and doing that sort of really sweet sigh smile that was just like, oh, no, 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 I'm not that person. I'm not the person who goes to the doctors and yeah. the doctors sort of grimace. That's not me. What? So yeah, it was a it's a tricky time and that's why I started the book there because I I just you know, I walked out of a hospital and I remember just standing there with my baby with him in a pram and he's so gorgeous and lovely and I'm wearing jeans that are starting to chafe my inner thigh because I was too upset so I rushed as I left the hospital and of course I wet myself again and it went on the edge of a tender lady and these are only little things but I I think lots of women experience that and don't ever talk about it. And I yeah. think that that it has loads of really enormous effects. And, you know, just initially, they're like personal ones on you. And, you know, mm. standing there in the wind on Highgate Hill with the with my jeans feeling cold because and just thinking, like, how am I going to get home? What if I meet someone? Mm. And this is, you know, it was it was a really shocking time. And I think the other thing that I didn't think when I was going through that, you know, I wanted someone to hold my hand. I wanted... I'm a big sister for three three younger sisters and I wanted somebody, I wanted a big sister mm. or somebody else's friend 
or big sisters, maybe somebody who didn't know me actually, to just come and tell me I'd be all right because it's a bit awkward with people you know because it's so personal. And that's, you know, I wanted to honour those tricky experiences because I don't think women get to talk about them. Women who've mm. had bad births are often silenced. Yeah. And I think I wanted to talk about them because I, I think that there will be resonance for a lot of women who have never told anyone. And that's certainly my anecdotal experience from having written a book about it is how many people come to me and say... I hadn't admitted to myself how much I've been leaking or yeah. I've never told anyone about the time I wet myself in Tesco's or whatever. And it's like, mm. it's a lot of us out there. And you write as well about those kind of big big surrogacy sisters or surrogacy big sisters um, who had had birth injuries and who were kind of cheering you on. You met them online or whatever and they'd be kind of supporting you through needing fanny physio and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then at the same time, you're reflecting on how it seems like it was almost you could talk about the taboo things with those people but once you started talking about the emotional side of it and how shit it actually made you feel that was almost harder I think it was and I think that there's levels of taboo when you look into it and I think that we could do loads of emojis and like fanny flange physio super Mm. day you know and those women were so kind and it's funny I've had heard from a couple of them like via social media where you know we must have we must have followed each other back in the day and and they were lovely and it's what I needed and the you know the knackered flange clique or whatever we called ourselves but (laughs) yeah it was there were some areas that you just can't go to because they're too hard and also maybe it's too raw I didn't write this book when it first happened it was too raw. Mm. I needed some time to sort of think about it and to have moved on. But yeah, so the things that people really couldn't talk about, and this is also what doctors and physios and medics who I've interviewed about the book and for the book said is uh, incontinence and emotions and how depressed it makes you. And yet there's like clinical evidence now, you know, that if you leak in pregnancy, which nobody ever talks about either very often, and, and it's really important for women to take care of their pelvic floor in pregnancy, but we sort mm. of have this sort of mentality that it's the horse has bolted, and that's not necessarily yeah. true. Leaking in pregnancy is makes you much more likely to get postnatal depression. Um, incontinence is really linked to depression and isolation and anxiety and to poor standards of you know quality of life. And you think those are all true things, but there's some places you can't go, and I think that that's how they felt, and also how it impacts mm. your relationships. And if something's yeah. a big secret, it, you're doing a lot of work to have a secret. Like, you're hiding it all the time, that's work. And I think, yeah, it was hard. And it and it took a while to actually find, even any way I could properly talk about it. Like, I didn't really link feeling so depressed to the incontinence properly till much later. And so I just thought it was my fault that I just hadn't known enough, that I had walked into birth, like, hopeful, and that was stupid of me. And, and those sorts of things. And that's not true. There's loads of people who have births that don't destroy things. So it was fine to be hopeful, but I was definitely ignorant of what could happen. Mm. And that just made the whole thing much more isolating and nasty than it needed to be. Because mm. if you all talked about it more, it's like nobody talks about, like, if a tent lady gets too full or that you might leak on when you're on your period, but not at other times of the month. And, and these are things that that, they, that are known about, but nobody talks about them. So you've got millions of women who aren't sure whether they're normal or not and don't yeah. know quite what to say. And don't want to make a fuss. None of us want to make a fuss, do we? We don't want to be that woman who's, like, carrying on. And it's just like, I don't think it's much to ask that, that you're continent and that you don't have, like, serious 
depression. You know, I don't think these are like, yeah. I don't think that's like a, a trivial thing. But the way we have the conversation about incontinence is there's a sort of serious conversation that we can all have where we're all at growing up, but we don't really dig into the details that you'd have about like ostomy bags and things. There's the joke conversation. It's just an oops moment. A little bit came out. Um, I'm going to get back to being me again. And all the advertising slogans. And I understand the sentiment. And there's an element of truth in that about just sort of mm. cheerfully getting on. But that doesn't really ring true with it when you've got to always take a spare pair of leggings in your handbag because there's something quite long-term drudgy about that. Yeah. And, and then there's the like sort of it's gross and disgusting conversations where I see it everywhere. It's like the bottom line have but I, I, people saying like talking about like pissy old ladies and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff and it's like so that's where we are now is it that we just like treat a third of women like they're just complete pariahs it's like and we aren't even made into proper pariahs we're not often thrown about our, from our house or anything like happens to some women across the world but we what we definitely do here is um allowing continents to impact every bit of life yeah, that's all. And, and, you know, and I know that from talking, for example, to people who run incontinence helplines saying women are often on the phone for 20 minutes. It's often the very first time they've ever mentioned that it's impacted or destroyed their marriage or partnership because they haven't been able to have sex. And, and you just think that's really it's just well, to me, it was like terrible and radicalizing. I think. Yeah, I just was like I I can't. And if I've got this. Um, a couple of physios who I know have said, you know, that it's like I forgot to be ashamed and I have this kind of superpower of being prepared to be like a gore whore or, you know, cringe minge and actually say this stuff that nobody else dares to say. And I thought, well, then I will, because my experience is when you do that, it gives other people permission to maybe just to think, oh, yeah, that's me. Yeah. Maybe just maybe to, maybe to buy a book, maybe to go and see their doctor, maybe to. But it gives them permission. You don't have to become a fanny warrior or a continence superhero or anything but even the fact that I wrote it seems to have had an impact on some people and maybe mm. okay so that's not me I'm not going to write a book with a swear word on the cover but maybe maybe I can say look that's why I'm being funny about sex so let's do, you know or whatever the conversation you need to have to make your life a bit better mm. so you went through months and months of physio and wetting yourself a lot and having a really hard time and then you realized that you were pregnant again Yes. How did you feel then? Well, I sort of, I was, I wanted to have another baby, so I was pleased. It's really, it's funny, isn't it? Like that. So I think I've sounded very serious in this podcast, and and the book is also a, and my story, just the story is like you know, just because terrible things happen doesn't mean good things don't happen as well. You know, life's complicated, and mm. when I first became pregnant with my second son, I could like my face has changed just thinking about it. I remember being sort of thrilled, and then. I can't tell you, it was almost like the second I put my pregnancy test down, I had a lurch and I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this again. Oh, what have I done? And I, again, I can sort of, I feel my face change when I talk about it. I I was so scared. I was Mm. terrified. And sort of by the time I was having my booking in and things, I had a panic attack in the waiting room. Like, and I was just hysterical. It was awful. And I had very kind care, actually. The, The boss midwife at that hospital came and basically looked after me and she saw me every time till till I gave birth and and she was very very kind and she understood why I just couldn't cope with any of it and I think that that's another very taboo area that people do not go in terms of antenatal depression except for Mm. the truth is I've had thousands of conversations even with women who have felt miserable a bit depressed down 
fed up when they're pregnant, filled with dread. This is really common. It's like a, it's mm. practically a symptom of pregnancy. Loads of women feel like that, but we're not allowed to, are we? We have to walk around like with some sort of infomercial for the National Childbirth Trust and a breastfeeding. Like It's like actually pregnancy can be a time of high anxiety, but we're not allowed to... We don't allow women to talk about that. We just police them, you know, and tell them what they can and can't yeah. do, you know. And I, I was I had terrible antenatal depression, and so I was terrified as well. And then he was born, and he was lovely. And I was and he flew out. <laughs> he flew out. He was my um. <laughs> it was funny because I also had a condition called um. It's called now called PGP, pelvic girdle pain. Um. Oh yeah. Where my pelvis was splitting because I I mean like what bad luck. Although they may be connected because it might be about a certain degree of laxity that I have, mm. you know, so I'm quite a stretchy person, quite a bendy person, quite mo- hypermobile and stuff. And so, sometimes that's linked with pelvic floor dysfunction. So it might be that that's why I was always on the wrong foot, that I had a fairly standard birth injury, but my damage was much worse than most people who have a second degree tear. That's why it didn't get better as quickly. Mm. But yeah, he flew out in under half an hour. And um, yeah, it was just like we were both done. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I didn't want to be pregnant. He didn't want to be there. Out. Born. And then, yeah. <laughs> It was basically what I said on the text. Born, he's born, he's here. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and he, and he's great. And I don't really. I'm an oldest child. I don't understand second children. So he's just like, <laughs> I don't know what you are. I love you. <laughs> that's that's why. So yeah, you know, and he was great. But my honestly, and I know how badly mashed my family was that time because after I gave birth, um, they were really kind. It was quite half an hour. It's actually shocking in its own way. And I went into sh- literal shock because he was born so quickly, and they. Um, mm. And they said, like, let me, like, they turn down the lights I had. I was really lucky I had a doula the second time, which is one of the things we did when I, because I was so scared about giving birth. And she just, like, you know, held my hand, held my husband's hand. I think my husband was holding my son and she put a blanket on me and turned down the lights. So she, as, as well as you can in a kind of clinical setting. Yeah. And I looked up and in the corner of the room is this big metal bed that is for resuscitating babies. So because my baby had the cord around his neck, he was fine, but it was obviously a bit scary. And... It was on the wall, so when I looked up, like through my uh, my bent legs, having just given birth, because it was made of metal, it was basically like a mirror. So I was like staring, mesmerized at like, what is that? Like red cave? What is that? Jewel red? And then I'm like, oh my god, that's it! That's my torn fanny! What the hell? And I was just like, I I didn't think that, (laughs) like you know. I should have looked when I was 15 and it was perfect or when I was 18 and it was perfect. <laughs> like, that was the wrong moment to see it, right? And it, and then I suddenly, I, it was like something from a movie. And then I was suddenly like, you know, when the screen goes wiggly, wiggly and Scooby-Doo, I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to faint. Like, so like, and, and then sort of, you've got this like beautiful like nativity type scene and my doula looks up and even she's like, oh God. Like, <laughs> what are we going to do? But yeah. So and they so yeah I so I that and that sort of really kick started the bigger incontinence stuff because mm. because of what I'd been through before because I'd leaked in pregnancy and talked to someone about it in that pregnancy and because so I you know practically they gave me a letter to physio as they cut his cord pretty much and so when he was sort of 10, 12 weeks old, I sort of trundled off to this new physio department that was like super whiz and brand new and interestingly like right in the bowels of the hospital like deep down no windows like hidden like the most shameful department <laughs> but you, you get there and they it's just full of women looking super pissed off and um these really 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 nice physios and nurses and 
I met like this one I mean, the book I talk about it and it sounds a bit silly but I can't tell you it was almost like she was like she walked like an angel towards me and she's just so kind and um she helped me such a lot that physio and she was very confident that we would get things sorted but my problem was I could work and work the sensation came back both times I had some nerve damage and I did all my lifts and pulls and lifts and pulls but I could never sort of get over the hump where I would definitely have a dry day where I could mm. be confident to not wear any not wear any pads in my knickers and when I have gone out and felt confident that I could go with that you know that that was it, it was just it was just really hard to do that and not risk having a massive leak at some point so it hadn't quite worked enough but it was funny because we'd spent so long and I'd tried so hard I have really fond memories of it but in some ways it was a very strange journey and I spent I've talked to lots of people who've not had continence issues but have had other like really difficult health interventions or conditions where you never thought it would happen to you like I guess I knew sometimes when we were damaged in childbirth and I knew some women end up with these horrific stories, but you don't think it's going to be you. No. You just don't. And no. my, I mean, I a couple of friends who've had things like, you know, breast cancer or other very serious and upsetting illnesses that are about personal parts of your body. And they've said the same thing, that even in the most serious conversations about cancer treatment and stuff, they too were sort of sitting going like, but this can't be happening. Yeah. And it's so weird. Like, you know that that's how you know, you see it in books and movies and things like that. And you, But when it's you, you still do that. You still think it can't happen to me. You still think this can't be happening. Yeah. And when they tell you something doesn't work or hasn't worked, it's the worst. And I'm, I can't imagine what that's like when it's about, you know, life-saving treatment. But mm. even just about my silly old broken fanny, it's pretty awful when they're like, this isn't working. And mm. I, but I did it all. I did all the things. I did the deal. Yeah, you were a good girl. I cut down on the coffee. I was a good girl. I wrote down a bladder diary. I did a whole two days at work measuring wee. So that meant like having to steal one of the cups from work and bring it home and measure it so that I could then, because I didn't couldn't take a jug into the toilets at work because you had to walk through an open plant office. So it just like, I can't tell you, like the fandangos and things I did. And bladder retraining mm. is a lot about like not running and not running to the toilet and and yet, I was, the physio didn't work, and I wet myself at my work Christmas party. Like, yeah. And I had to kind of cover it up by smashing a glass, and it was really interesting to show like how sort of you get socialised into sickness or being ill or problems with your body, that when I told that story to the physio, this lovely, lovely physio who'd looked after me for like well over a year and um, been terribly kind, and, and the first person who'd even half broached that she thought my depression was connected to incontinence and that I should, you know, she was really good about that. I told her that I wet myself whilst trying to do a selfie with a selfie stick. Mm. And um, there, was, there was a big group of us and I wet myself and I threw a glass of wine on the floor on purpose to kind of cover it up. Yeah. Because it was the only thing I could think of to do. And so it's like, I'd rather look drunk and out and complete clumsy drunk than mm. anything else. So, and also it protects you against the smell. If you've got, you've got half an hour or whatever to get out because you, you smell of, of Prosecco now and... Um, Although it was awful, because so then then like one of the staff came up and I'm like, no no no, I'll clean it up. Like oh my god, like, but yeah. yeah. And I tell her this story and she was just horrified. And I think I'd kind of got so accustomed to those sorts of things that I just assumed that that was like that that was sort of more normal. But I don't I don't know if lots of women are doing things like that. Perhaps they are, but I mm. I think you just kind of get into a mindset where you're coping and there isn't really anything else. Mm. but that's quite extreme isn't it to like completely wait yourself in front of all your colleagues that's like looking back it was quite an extreme event but to me at the time it was just sort of part of the normal risks of going out or having fun 
Yeah. So the physio didn't work and you were then referred to see a surgeon, That's which was, I think, a pretty good experience. Like you were taken very seriously and everything. Yeah, I, I was very, very lucky. I think it's it's a very complex world now, um, the incontinence world, because there's lots of people know, and this is true across the globe, to varying degrees it's been responded to, though some countries they're still using the mesh, but... Um, the mesh operation has dominated like discussion around women's health for years, mm. quite rightly, because it was such a terrible, terrible, and as that report suggested, perhaps indicative uh, situation where women were being ignored and gaslit and, mm. and stuff, and women going to their doctors and saying, I've had this operation, now I can't, you know, have sex, and, you know, it hurts all the time, and then being like, oh, you've been reading the Daily Mail, just calm down, sort of thing. Yeah. And women not taken seriously, and appalling outcome measures. So if a, w- a woman could be in a wheelchair if she was no longer leaking urine, the operation counted as success because yeah. they didn't feed that in. And, and all this stuff, and, and the, uh, you know, I, I didn't have the mesh. I, I'm very lucky. Um, although when I, and when I went, I didn't ever feel gaslit or not taken seriously or like they were misogynists or that they were difficult. I felt incredibly cared for by highly dedicated, very kind surgeons. Hmm. What I also felt, which is important, embarrassing and upsetting in retrospect is I felt incredibly jealous of people who had the mesh because that was a much quicker operation had a really quick um like you out you get back to what you're doing and the people at the time when I when I first had it done nearly 10 years when I first had my operation nearly 10 years ago the people I knew had had it were fine they loved it. They were, mm. And so I was like, why didn't I get the easy operation? And I got this really hard one that was quite hard to cope with, certainly in comparison to the mash, mesh. So I was off for a couple of weeks and I had to have things like um, drains and um, the disgusting drains and wee bags strapped to my leg and all that sort of yeah. stuff after the surgery because it's a big deal, bladder surgery. And it's really pa- painful. Um, but also it was over fairly quickly and it, and it worked to a degree. It di- Again, never quite got me fully there. But it, mm. it worked quite well. Um, but they were so kind and they were nice to me and nobody treated me badly at all. And when I went back and said, oh, it hasn't quite worked, they were also receptive enough to say, OK, we can try this, we can try that. And they gave me some options. Mm. And um, in fact, did another much more minor surgery called a bulkamide injection. And when I went and had that one, the sec- so a second op, like, to try and stop me leaking. And, I, and by then, I wasn't really going for a goal of complete... Um, complete and utter dryness I was going for what I still go for now which is sort of a sense of control about it so mm. I don't very often get taken by surprise so if I know that I'm gonna have a boozy night or I know that actually oh god I've had my th- I've had three coffees today I would know mm. to be more sensible and that sort of thing and I've had to just manage it in that way in the way people manage other long-term things and it, mm. and I don't very often get caught out anymore but when I went for that surgery I remember being you know it's weird surgery it's quite scary and you feel so vulnerable once you've not got any clothes on in a hospital and I just was sort of standing Mm. there with you know a cold bum because my brown wasn't on and thinking like here I am again in the worst bits of the hospital and the first surgeon who I'd who I'd met and had done my first surgery came up and spoke to me and he wasn't even doing the second surgery he'd seen my name on the board so that's the level of personal care he came and obviously made me cry you know he came and like sort of practically held my hand and said oh you know I'm really glad I'm so you know I I think this is a really good move for you and and just Mm. I I just couldn't not come and say hi Lucy and I was just like oh it's really nice so yeah I was treated really brilliantly and I and I just can't think how awful it must have been for women with the mesh think it's terrible the second time Mm. by the way I was offered the mesh the second time so in all that time so I had the operations like nine 
no, eight years ago and six years ago or something like that, or eight years mm. ago and four years ago. But the first operation, the mesh was still the gold standard and it was still offered to me the second time. So women have been having it put in until really relatively recently. Mm. And when I was offered it the second time, that was when the stories were starting to come out. Um, but I was given, I mean, thousands of pages of things to read and all that stuff. to, and, and I felt that there was, there was an issue there for women's health, actually. And I think that this is what I worry about, about post-mesh, taken as read that we would all have huge sympathy with people who've been basically butchered and really badly hurt by this operation and that you know that, that, that any kind of culpability should be punished for people who've like lied to women and gaslit them and those sorts of things I think a that that community has been really rocked I think those mm. doctors and those surgeons I don't think they were trying to hurt people I think they thought they had a cheap alternative that didn't have to be rationed which was course, super yeah. exciting for a problem that goes back to probably presumably when Eve had a first third degree tear. You know, like we've yeah. always had incontinence. It's referenced in medieval literature. It's like it's it's everywhere. Um, so I think that they were really upset. But I think, I think also, the response to give women loads and loads of research to read or patients mm. loads and loads of research. I'm slightly more ambivalent about that. I yeah. felt like I was being blamed because you know all the responsibility now fell on me. And I'm like, hey, you know, in this particular sphere, incontinent people have enough to worry about. I don't need to read 15 research studies where it's not clear how old the women are, so I don't know if it has any bears, any relation to me. You know, that's quite a battle, and I wonder if that's happening more as people become more litigious and and things. And I I think it's a shame because I think that makes it... It makes the patient responsible, and I don't think that's fair. Yeah, Absolutely. I talk a lot about that. The last bit of the book is a lot about, because um, one of the other, several reasons I wrote it, but one of the reasons I wrote it is because of the reaction to like sort of some blog posts and things from medics, from surgeons and midwives and um, physiotherapists and stuff. And I it never occurred to me, I wasn't writing PMSL for them, didn't occur to me that it would be helpful for them. But that's been such an astonishing response still. You know, I get mm. emails and letters a lot. and And I think that they you know there was something very important for them and I wrote a lot about that relationship towards the end because I was getting already getting sort of such input from people and I think there's loads of complex stuff going on especially with Mm. intimate things so I think because none of us all of us are too well most of us are prudish about incontinence prudish about sex and things so we don't talk to doctors and midwives about those things voluntarily so that they don't get much in the field experience talking to people about those things initially so you know, they need to do it more so they're better at it, so we're better at it, so we can, you know, and it's a, it's so self-fulfilling, such a negative mm. spiral of nobody talking so nobody talks. Yeah, and exactly. I think, and I think also, like, there's, there's, a, there's other things about just sort of being really mindful of what's going on, because, I mean, I don't know, like, I mean, I even remember once having a smear test where someone said, like, we're going to need a bigger speculum. I'm like, oh, it's not Jaws. Like, oh, my God. Like, and she went, it's because you're tall. I was like, well, good. Oh, God. Um, and I just think that I had so many like that. There were people like that. So the the book opens with me in that like sort of scary um, first physio appointment where I really didn't know what was about to happen. Yeah. And she was so nice, but she was like, don't be embarrassed. And I just remember sort of like, I'm the good girl. I do what I'm told, thinking like, but it really is embarrassing. Like, I've just took my knickers off and you're asking me to bear down. So I'm probably going to fart. Like, oh, my God, like, this is really <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> Like, and people keep telling you things like that so don't be don't be worried and like when I had a urodynamics test they're like you know you mustn't try and it's like you must you know you just have to let it all out sort of thing and I'm like actually that's quite a big ask to stand to be a pissy performer in front of all these people like yeah 
it's like pussy riot or something like what do you expect and I am going to be shell-shocked by that because I literally really didn't think that at the age of 34 I would be like so incontinent that I was standing in a wet room with loads of student surgeons looking at me weighing down my legs that I'd forgotten to shave like that wasn't quite what I was envisaging and so like I remember once and my mum had a very similar experience when she had um, cancer that we both have had this thing where we've been like weepy and the medic's gone why are you crying and it's like because I don't want to be here like yeah and I think that sometimes those things get a bit lost especially if you're an interesting case or if you're a very run-of-the-mill case like I think if you're a run-of-the-mill, you can almost see it. Like, they're like, oh, it's another broken fanny today. Like, you know, it's just like, but it's mine. Like, let's say I've seen everything. It's like, you've not seen everything. I don't oh, let many people vaginas. see that. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, it's like, I usually expect a drink first. Like, I really don't show it to everyone, mate. Like, and then it's just like, what? And, and then, or they're like rubbing their hands with glee. And you're like... I mean, I remember that with stitching, looking down, and, and it was only much, much later. So when I was being stitched both times, one of them, somebody said, does that bit go with that bit? And I did, <laughs> my husband said I sort of sat up and oh, like, no. sort of heaved myself up like a whale and was like, just like, bloody well better. And can yeah. we have some, like, medical terms, maybe, in the house? Like, but, but she'd lost... She wasn't unprofessional, that student, particularly. I think more... And I'm not cross, it's a good story, but I just thought... I, well, I just didn't really understand it. And then years and years later, I was at a dinner party at, and a work dinner, I think, and I met a midwife and she said, I said, oh, what's your favourite bit about the job or something? Trying to be polite and really sort of daring myself. Have I got over my depression and my trauma about childbirth? Like, how will I always be someone who just bursts into tears when people tell me they're pregnant or has to go and hide and cry or or not? And um, she said, oh, my favourite thing is suturing. And I was like, what? She was like, oh, no, I love it. She was like, it's amazing. And, like, it was like being around a campfire when you're little. She was, like, the way she was talking, I could almost see her doing it. And she was saying, like, and sometimes you're looking and you're thinking, I've got to plan my journey because I've got to do this as neatly as possible. And I have got this woman's sexual health, this woman's potential for future childbirth. I've got all these things in my hands. And, you know, if it's a really bad tear and it goes off into different directions, you know, I've got muscle to sew and other things to sew. And, I, and I'm like, wow, I was not expecting that. No. But also, there's the truth of it, isn't it? That's why women's health stuff is complex, because the worst day of your life might be the most interesting day of that month for that surgeon. Mm. And I think we all need more honest conversations about these really difficult things or otherwise there's always going to be this complexity to it because especially in a world where we ask patients what they want all the time, people kept doing that, saying, like, what would you like me to do? And I'm like, I don't know, get a, get a medical degree and work out the best <laughs> operation for me. Like, it really did feel like at some points, like, again, like, you know, it's like, I just, I'm too busy and tired from having to buy loads of extra black OPEC tights from Primark and to have to wear a certain sort of clothing so that I can change and being afraid that, when people say, oh, you know, you never pack light, do you? And having to, oh, ha, 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 about going on a work trip and having a really big wheelie case and all that sort of stuff. Like, I'm too busy. I can't know what I want. I don't know what I want. I'm broken and I want to be fixed. And then at the same time, you know, uh, completely contrary, because I am a contrary Mary, I'm also like, you don't get to control my body, I do. So it's, it's a hard area, but that, and it, yeah. but it's like that because we're so taboo about vaginas and incontinence and the menopause and like all these things 
I always think it's really telling that this happened to me when I was in labour the first time. I remember at the hospital, contractions every four or five minutes or whatever it is, or how I don't know. And um, I remember having like a sort of show, like a, a lot of blood suddenly came mm. out. Not a hemorrhage, but like enough to like soak into my knickers and things. And I'd spent all pregnancy being like really terrified of blood in your knickers that it might mean a miscarriage or something terrible like that. And so I'm like to the midwife, oh my God, like what's happened? And she was like, you're having a, a baby. And it's a bit like, that's how ignorant I was. I didn't even know. Like I understood yeah. there might be blood from tearing or when the baby comes out. I didn't realise there might be blood and dis- like mucus and uh, just shit and all the stuff that's there when you give birth. And like I went to all the classes and I read all the books and I understood that the vagina was looks like a tube but isn't and all that stuff. Mm. But I just, I just, there's so much silence around it. I was so woefully underinformed, despite reading like all these books and talking and going to all the classes. So I think I just can't have been alone. I can't be the only one who was just side rocked by the whole childbirth thing. Mm. But it's it's funny because I think a lot of a lot of women who have um, more severe birth injuries and and struggled for years would say that they feel that. Um, I mean, nobody had told me. I can't believe that nobody had told me. And a lot of people would say that they wished that they had been better informed and that somebody would have just told them, this might happen, it's shit, but, you know, we'll deal with it and these are the risks. Right, um, I don't think... But then you're, you're talking in the book as well about those antenatal classes yeah. and how, in some ways, you kind of zone out a little bit when it gets really gory because I think it's the thing you're saying as well, of you, you never really think this is going to happen to me. So... Is there really ever a way to prepare a pregnant person um, for for what might happen? Like, do you think that um, that antenatal classes and these various things that that can change how we feel when something does go wrong? I think maybe, and I think, um, but I agree. I I mean, I had definitely like powered down by then. I was definitely on sort of sleep mode by the end. And I think part of the problem is you obviously can't have them really early in the pregnancy, but when you have your 37 weeks, like 35, 37, 39 weeks, it's like, you're telling me about my perineum, like, really? Uh, you know, there's, uh, this, there's only one way this is going to end, you know? Um, it's yeah. going to come out somehow. But I, So I think it is about earlier on, because, you know, I talk about, like, it is a bit in some sexual health curriculum stuff now, and that's where it needs to be. It needs to be right from the start. And I, I guess it would also be really interesting to hear from communities where it's still much more common for family members to be in the house or even accompany their mothers, their daughters, their cousins into birth. Because I think mm. maybe it, particularly in uptight Western, inverted commas, you know, sort of countries with, with high income countries like the US and America and Canada and us and Ireland and, and some of Europe, like we maybe don't have lots of that. And it would mm. be interesting to find out, like, do women in a culture where that's much more common, do they feel as like outraged? Like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe they maybe they don't. Maybe they have a better idea of what's coming. Yeah. But I think the wrong, unfortunately, a really bad time to tell someone about severity of birth injuries is when they're 36 weeks pregnant. They can already <laughs> feel it kicking their cervix. So it's like, OK, I think also I know a lot of people who had, you know, so mine was like a second degree tear. So it wasn't even like the worst kind of injury at all. Mm. I, but I have spoken to women with third and fourth. Good God bless them, you know, women, mm. poor sods. And um, some of them really weren't 
treated with that much kindness. Like, it wasn't treated like, you know, they weren't followed up in the way that they should have been. There wasn't a kind of... And there is a really big kind of, like, PTSD, because we all associate that with being, like, a soldier in a war or being a torture victim or whatever. I think it's easy to forget that that is a clinical idea and that's about you have felt that you or someone you love was about to die and believed that. And I think if you've had a nasty birth, that's exactly what you thought and that was like Mm. one of the most taboo things of of all that I ever said when somebody said um you was so brave like in the pushing stage so I tore before he even came out the first time well done me um like top of the class and I just I did everything she said for two reasons one because only one midwife was using my name and I did what she said yeah don't know if it was the right stuff I mean and with this is such an intimate relationship I remember feeling her breath on my thighs like that's a she was right in there saying you can do it standing in the way of somebody coming in with some scissors and somebody coming in with four, ready to do the forceps they were like sort of moving in to do it and she was like we we can we can get him out it's going to be okay mm. um so I did everything because she was saying my name and I also kept pushing because I thought we were both going to die and I didn't mm. care I was just like I don't care it's over numbness and that that so that had kicked in before he'd even been born that kind and and I think that's a sort of dissociative that is clearly a sort of traumatized response and I'm not joking that is honestly how I felt and I remember mm. first saying that to another mum oh god I mean I just look back and I just think that I was so lucky that those women stuck with me because that I was just mad you know and they she was sitting there and she was like oh Luce you didn't really think that did you mm. she was so nice and I was just like yeah I did yeah that is exactly yeah. what I thought um, because it had gone on too long, it was too painful, people had been too horrible, there was too much blood everywhere. I just assu- I don't, and I'd never never had any kind of notion of the amount of pain. I mean, and I don't know how you prepare women in the book. I've put a 10 centimetre circle because I think that's quite illustrative of like what mm. might be coming, but I I don't know. And you don't and also I, I you know, I love pregnant women. Like, they used to make me cry whenever I saw them, but now I now I love them and I just think, you know, I, I don't want them to know all this horrible stuff. A part of me doesn't, because I just think it's so nice when you're in John Lewis, you know, Bible stuff. And then mm. also it's pretty awful to just sort of emerge from something and think, I don't recognise what I see in the mirror. This yeah. isn't how it was supposed to be. Yeah. It is such a vulnerable time, isn't it? And I mean, there is so much vulnerability in your book, even though you write about all of this with a huge dose of humour and yeah, yeah. there are a lot of laughs in there. I think especially for people who've been through some of the some of what you describe, I mean, the situations that are just so bizarre that they you have to laugh. Um, but underneath it all, it is very, very vulnerable, isn't it? I think so. I think um, I had a friend who read it and she said, you use the word broken so many times and I hadn't even realised that or yeah. noticed it myself. And then I said that to my husband, I said, do it. And he's like, oh yeah, no, I thought you'd done it on purpose as a sort of poetic thing. And it's like... No, I did other things on purpose, like and made the jokes and yeah. marry up and stuff. But I was like, oh, and I think maybe that's what it is about. Like, I talk about how people have memories of their birth and all I, my biggest memory of it is these very intense flashbacks that then make me cry when I talk about them, of like, like feeling her whispering my name in between my legs and things. But also the main thing was just sort of standing in a mirror afterwards and just kind of being mesmerised by what was there and that, I didn't even really know that you still had a tummy, a big bump Mm. after you've just given birth. Like, I don't know what I thought happened. I was just (laughs) like, 
I just I didn't even know that. And this kind of shock. And as you say, it's like vulnerable, broken. And I felt so fragile. And, mm. and that's maybe what I mean when I'm like, this can't be happening to me. Because ultimately, we all want to feel real and solid and to have some control and autonomy. And we spend all our lives doing that and creating this world where we all pretend we're never going to die and that everything's fine. And, you know, making ourselves look 10 years younger and whatever it is, we all mm. we all buy into to whatever degree. But when something like that happens, it's like a shell shock. Because you're like, this is all temporary. This is like... It was all fragile. It can change yeah. like that. And you're like, wow. And then someone's like, here's something to look after for the rest of your life. You might screw it up. Off you go and chucks the baby yeah. in your arm. And you have to like yeah. leave, go and find some, work out which nappies to buy for them and you. And you're suddenly in this like whole world. And I feel like I spent about a year and some, you know, just sort of, I was still half the time just still standing in the, in front of a mirror, looking at myself like I needed time to stop for like, five years to get over mm. what had happened and in, mm. instead I had to try and learn to breastfeed and um yeah and all, clear up shit the whole time but just to to go back to speaking of shit um to, yes. to go back to the surgeries some some at some stage around that time you started to also suffer from fetal incontinence um yeah. and I mean you talk in the book about bum balloons and bum plugs <laughs> and all these various funny things well you know funny yeah. uh with within quotation marks um what what was that like i mean it was that was surreal and it's much much better now um and i i think that there was lots of components that added to it about having had all this surgery being really tired my pelvic floor not being very good and i don't know i you know i was also sort of quite depressed and not very well but yeah i started leaking and they had to what they had to do was a certain that it wasn't to do with the operation which it wasn't it's not like they accidentally slipped or anything and to work out what caused it and in the end it was idiopathic they they didn't know what caused it Mm. and it only lasted for about a year but I um yeah it was quite intense because I had definitely definitely even despite all those lessons learned about whether it happens to you and whether it's you know how we need to be grown up about everything I had still thought, even in the worst things with incontinence, like, at least I'm not that guy or that woman. Like, when they ask me about whether I've leaked from my bowel, I say no. Yeah, not that. exactly. Yeah, no. So there's always another stage. It's all, there's always something. Yeah. And so when that happened, it really was, like, such a fucking swizz. Yeah. I just, like... So I was sort of partly just incredulous. I mean, again, vast majority of people very, very nice in that world. And there's so much they can do, like... I just had no idea. Like, that's the thing. I think loads of people walk around with continence issues and they they could go and find out and it, they might well find that there's things that just make their life immeasurably easier, even mm. if it can't be cured, or for huge percentages of them, some proper pelvic floor exercises and accompanying, you know, wider exercises because it's a muscle it's one of many muscles you should you don't just have to do your clenches you should exercise all of the muscles around there mm. um, then you might be cured and, or at the very least feel much better and that's what all the evidence mm. says and I just couldn't believe it so like there's so much like super waste bum technology like you wouldn't believe and I had a lot of conversations online with a woman who's had um, this sort of stimulator put in to help her with her fecal incontinence so I never had to have any surgeries or anything but yeah it's amazing I mean the worst thing about the bum balloons is that um is that I always want to get the right answer when I'm with a doctor. So I always want to sort of... T- so I feel really like I've, like, 
disappointed them if I get it wrong. And I remember her saying like, oh, you know, say when it touches, a, you know, reaches a pressure point. And I'd be like, now. And she'd be like, really? It's like, no, 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 it can't. It's not now. It must be something else. <laughs> so it's like, um, uh, anyway, so, yeah. And I've still got some bum tampons here that I kept because the worst thing about bum tampons for me, so I'm just going to say it in case anyone has to use them. They're fine. They're comfortable. You can use them in lots of different ways and you can get them on prescription. But I didn't realise when I first went to get someone with my GP that um, they come sized. Oh, yeah. So it's like, are you an extra large? It's like, oh, I, I, I just was like, <laughs> it's small. I must, I'm small. I'm definitely <laughs> a small. Like, what? It's awful. So now you know that because that was a, that's like, you know, you know I'm like, I've like psyched myself up to go and talk about pooing myself with my GP. And even yeah. then you threw me another curveball. <laughs> small. How, um, how do you feel now when you think about all these things like obviously you've written a book about it so you've processed a lot of it um but I mean do you feel sad or bitter or are you kind of um what is the overarching feeling I don't feel bitter I think I did when I was really depressed and angry I but I don't and I don't feel like even though it was really horrid my first child's birth I don't actually think there was a sort of huge level of culpability necessarily. I think it was just a really unfortunate series of events that mm. happened to have a massive impact on me and my own my take home it's not about blaming any one person or hospital or team it's about just staying be mindful of like the impact of being just a little bit shitty with someone who's really very scared that might stick with them for 10 years. So I I I feel like that. I feel um really weirdly protective of like young me and and how I feel very strongly that we shouldn't blame women for all this stuff that happens because they could be better organized or better educated or know more about their bodies or more about childbirth but ultimately they they don't because of stigma and conditioning Hmm. so I feel very protective and I think the other thing I feel is a sense of um I feel like I'm not in the battle anymore so I feel it's not exactly calm but it's a it's a sense of like I do feel distance from it. I do very much rail against the idea that things happen for a reason and that um, that you learn loads from bad events because I did learn loads, but that I could have learned all of them by nice things happening to me, not yeah. bad things. Like I think we do put a lot of pressure on people who've had shitty health lives to like make us all feel better about it by saying you know, cancer yeah. taught me this or like incontinence taught me that. Like I did learn a lot, but I think all I it was all about like just sort of resilience and speaking out how um how have your experiences influenced your feminism well I think they've radicalized me so I think I found childbirth radicalized me far more than I thought it would even that traumatic one even in the windows that weren't like flashbacks and awful stuff around that first birth made me really upset I mean I have never ever had a more compelling argument for abortion than giving birth I think mm. that, and um, and I remember saying to a friend of mine, like, I would, I'll fight. Someone could just hold my coat like that. Mm. So, yeah, so it, it made it stone cold and solid that mm. our, our bodies just, you cannot force women to do stuff like that to their bodies. You just can't. It's brutal. And we don't mm. ask men to do that. Or, you know, and, you know, people who give birth are so vulnerable that you have to be, yeah, I, I just, personally, I'm quite hardcore now about things like abortion I Mm. also think it made me it made me sad uh, about women around the world who are just 
it's awful and there is a global problem with things like continents and health and we are all doing very well and we have books and podcasts and stuff and there is that stuff going on elsewhere but they just can't talk in the street as openly as we can they mm. and you know they, and that's and that's important that we remember that and like there's loads of women who have very basic obstetric injuries where their lives are ruled by it where anyone like us just you know within you know a couple of hours you've been stitched up and sorted out in a way that's never happened for those people who've given birth it's never happened so I thought I feel that I think also it really brought home that um women are always expected to solve all the stuff and like women's health is a problem for women to solve and obstetrics is a problem for women to solve and childbirth is a problem for women to solve and it's like it's it's not like men have nothing to do with any of those things or mm. like it's like why do women have to sort all that out like what why have we got that to do and I, I feel like there's a lot of work that needs to be done and I feel scared it's all falling to women because it's women mm. doing all of this stuff that I see mostly because mm. one of the stats that I found out when I was like radicalized by being so upset that it's like one in three women one in ten yeah. people with fecal leakage um around the world more people have um bladder problems than hay fever yet we never talk yeah. about it enough and all that sort of stuff I also found out that incontinence has a huge impact on older women so obviously geriatric patients are more likely to be incontinent I was unusual because I was young um whereas that it's much more common in those age groups also it's a quite common I think second or one of the most com common reasons apart from like falls and dementia for women to go into nursing homes and that's a massive deal yeah if somebody's not doing her pelvic floors because her tampon's a bit loose when she's 17 and then when she's 75 she ends up in a home earlier than yeah that's a big deal um so like there is a very radical feminist argument for pelvic floor education and for, yeah for incontinence being just spoken about like a cold or a sore throat and something that we talk about and because we know with a cough like look at COVID-19 everyone's like oh what's a persistent cough oh, and then people say oh you know my, my little boy was <coughs> but he wasn't <coughs> and we sort of talk yeah. about it if we did that about incontinence then people would get help or they would be like okay so I'm on the scale it's not that bad so I'm going to do my pelvic floors at home meet my GP and or self-refer to the local physio and just get them to check and th th then they're fine, you know, we get to know that stuff, but we don't, we have no way of comparing. I didn't know my situation was that bad until the surgeon mm. said it was off the scale. <laughs> I was like, oh. Oh, wow. It was like, he was just like, I can't believe you've been living like that. It was like, yeah. oh, great, okay. You know, yeah. thanks. But like, you know, <laughs> a lifetime of judging our pants, off we go. Co women do multitasking, don't we? We're all very great at carrying on. But... Mm. That was Lou's Brett on Bits of Me. If you've ever struggled with incontinence, you should pick up a copy of her book, PMSL. If you haven't, but you've given birth or think you might want to someday, you should read it too, because it's a beautiful book about so many aspects of losing yourself and your body to motherhood. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes, but you can follow Lou's at Lou's Brett on Instagram and Twitter. Bits of Me is on Instagram as well at bits of me underscore podcast and on Twitter at bits of me underscore pod. As always, a review or a share is massively appreciated. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.